Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Damsel in Distress by P. G. Woodhouse Read by Yas Pistachio in Waxhaw, North Carolina Chapter 15 Lord Belfer's twenty-first birthday dawned brightly, heralded in by much twittering of sparrows in the ivy outside his bedroom, these Percy did not hear, for he was sound asleep, and had had a late night. The first sound that was able to penetrate his heavy slumber, and rouse him to a realization that his birthday had arrived, was the piercing cry of Reggie Bing on his way to the bathroom across the corridor. It was Reggie's disturbing custom to urge himself on to a cold bath with encouraging yells, and the noise of this performance, followed by a violent splashing and a series of sharp howls, as the sponge played upon the Bing spine, made sleep an impossibility within a radius of many yards. Percy sat up in bed and cursed Reggie silently. He discovered that he had a headache. Presently the door flew open, and the vocalist entered in person, clad in a pink bathrobe and very tousled and rosy from the tub. "'Many happy returns of the day, boots old thing!' Reggie burst rollickingly into song. "'I'm twenty-one to-day, twenty-one to-day. I've got the key of the door, never been twenty-one before, and father says I can do what I like, so shout hip-hip-hooray! I'm a jolly good fellow, twenty-one to-day!' Lord Belfer scowled morosely. "'I wish you wouldn't make that infernal noise!' "'What infernal noise?' "'That singing!' "'My "'God, this man has wounded me,' said Reggie. "'I've a headache.' "'I thought you would have, laddie, when I saw you getting away with the liquid last night. An X-ray photograph of your liver would show something that looked like a crumpled oak-leaf, studded with hobnails. You ought to take more exercise, dear heart. Except for sloshing that policeman, you haven't done anything athletic for years.' "'I wish you wouldn't harp on that affair.' Reggie sat down on the bed. "'Between ourselves, old man,' he said confidentially, "'I also, I myself, Reginald Bing, in person, was perhaps a shade polluted during the evening. I give you my honest word that just after dinner I saw three versions of your uncle, the bishop, standing in a row side by side. I tell you, laddie, that for a moment I thought I had strayed into a bishop's beano at Exeter Hall, or the Athenaeum, or wherever it is those chappies collect in gangs.' 
Then the three bishops sort of congealed into one bishop, a trifle blurred about the outlines, and I felt relieved. But what convinced me that I had emptied a flagon or so too many was a rather rummy thing that occurred later on. Have you ever happened, during one of these feasts of reason and flows of soul, when you were bubbling over with joie de vivre, have you ever happened to see things? What I mean to say is, I had a deuced odd experience last night. I could have sworn that one of the waiter chappies was that fellow who knocked off your hat in Piccadilly. Lord Belfer, who had sunk back onto the pillows at Reggie's entrance, and had been listening to his talk with only intermittent attention, shot up in bed. What? Absolutely. My mistake, of course, but there it was. The fellow might have been his double. But you've never seen the man. Oh, yes, I have. I forgot to tell you. I met him on the links yesterday. I'd gone out there alone, rather expecting to have a round with a pro, but finding this lad there, I suggested that we might go round together. We did eighteen holes, and he licked the boots off me. Very hot stuff he was. And after the game, he took me off to his cottage and gave me a drink. He lives at the cottage next door to Platt's farm, so you see, it was the identical chappy. We got extremely matey, like brothers. Absolutely. So, you can understand what a shock it gave me when I found what I took to be the same man serving bracers to the multitude for the same evening. One of those nasty jars that causes a fellow's head to swim a bit, don't you know, and make him lose confidence in himself. Lord Belfer did not reply. His brain was whirling. So he had been right, after all. You know, pursued Reggie seriously, I think you are making the bloomer of a lifetime over this hat-swatting chappie. You've misjudged him. He's a first-rate sort. Take it from me. Nobody could have got out of the bunker at the fifteenth hole better than he did. If you'll take my advice, you'll conciliate the feller. A really first-class golfer is what you need in the family. Besides, even leaving out of the question the fact that he can do things with a niblick that I didn't think anybody except the pro could do, he's a corking good sort, a stout fellow in every respect. I took to the chappy. He's all right. Grab him boots before he gets away. That's my tip to you. He'll never regret it. From first to last, this lad didn't foozle a single drive, and his approach putting has to be seen to be believed. Well, well, got to dress, I suppose. Mustn't waste life springtime sitting here talking to you. Toodaloo, laddie, we shall meet anon. Lord Belfer leaped from his bed. He was feeling worse than ever now, and a glance into the mirror told him that he looked rather worse than he felt. Late nights and insufficient sleep, added to the need of a shave, always made him look like something that should have been swept up and taken away to the ash-bin. And as for his physical condition, talking to Reggie Bing never tended to make you feel better when you had a headache. Reggie's manner was not soothing, and on this particular morning his choice of topic had been unusually irritating. Lord Belfer told himself that he could not understand Reggie. He had never been able to make his mind quite clear as to the exact relations between the latter and his sister Maud, but he had always been under the impression that, if they were not actually engaged, they were on the verge of becoming so, and it was maddening to have to listen to Reggie advocating the claims of a rival, as if he had no personal interest in the affair at all. Percy felt for his complacent friend something of the annoyance which a householder feels for the watchdog whom he finds fraternizing with the burglar. 
Why, Reggie, more than anyone else, ought to be foaming with rage at the insolence of this American fellow in coming down to Belfer and planting himself at the castle gates. Instead of which, on his own showing, he appeared to have adopted an attitude towards him which would have excited remark if adopted by David towards Jonathan. He seemed to spend all his spare time frolicking with the man on the golf links and hobnobbing with him in his house. Lord Belfer was thoroughly upset. It was impossible to prove it, or to do anything about it now, but he was convinced that the fellow had wormed his way into the castle in the guise of a waiter. He had probably met Maud, and plotted further meetings with her. This thing was becoming unendurable. One thing was certain. The family honour was in his hands. Anything that was to be done to keep Maud away from the intruder must be done by himself. Reggie was hopeless. He was capable, as far as Percy could see, of escorting Maud to the fellow's door, in his own car, and leaving her on the threshold with his blessing. As for Lord Marshmorton, Roses and the family history took up so much of his time that he could not be counted on for anything but moral support. He, Percy, must do the active work. He had just come to this decision, when, approaching the window and gazing down into the grounds, he perceived his sister Maud walking rapidly, and, so it seemed to him, with a furtive air, down the east drive. And it was to the east that Platt's farm, and the cottage next door to it, lay. At the moment of this discovery, Percy was in a costume ill-adapted for the taking of a country walk. Reggie's remarks about his liver had struck home, and it had been his intention, by way of a corrective to his headache and a general feeling of swollen ill-health, to do a little work before his bath with a pair of Indian clubs. He had arrayed himself for this purpose in an old sweater, a pair of grey flannel trousers, and patent leather evening shoes. It was not the garb he would have chosen himself for a ramble, but time was flying, even to put on a pair of boots is a matter of minutes, and in another moment or two Maud would be out of sight. Percy ran downstairs, snatched up a soft shooting-hat, which proved, too late, to belong to a person with a head two sizes smaller than his own, and raced out into the grounds. He was just in time to see Maud disappearing round the corner of the drive. Lord Belfer had never belonged to that virile class of the community which considers running a pleasure and a pastime. At Oxford, on those occasions when the members of his college had turned out on raw afternoons to trot along the river-bank, encouraging the college eight with yelling and the swinging of police-rattles, Percy had always stayed prudently in his rooms with tea and buttered toast, thereby avoiding who knows what colds and coughs. When he ran, he ran reluctantly, and with a definite object in view, such as the catching of a train— he was consequently not in the best of condition, and the sharp sprint, which was imperative at this juncture if he was to keep his sister in view, left him spent and panting. But he had the reward of reaching the gate of the drive not many seconds after Maud, and of seeing her walking, more slowly now, down the road that led to Platt's. This confirmation of his suspicions enabled him momentarily to forget the blister which was forming on the heel of his left foot. He set out after her at a good pace. The road, after the habit of country roads, wound and twisted. The quarry was frequently out of sight, and Percy's anxiety was such that every time Maud vanished he broke into a gallop. 
Another hundred yards, and the blister no longer consented to be ignored. It cried for attention like a little child, and was rapidly insinuating itself into a position of the scheme of things, where it threatened to become the centre of the world. By the time the third bend in the road was reached, it seemed to Percy that this blister had become the one great fact in an unreal nightmare-like universe. He hobbled painfully, and when he stopped suddenly and darted back into the shelter of the hedge, his foot seemed aflame. The only reason why the blister on his left heel did not at this juncture attract his entire attention was that he had become aware that there was another of equal proportions forming on his right heel. Percy had stopped and sought cover in the hedge because, as he rounded the bend in the road, he perceived, before he had time to check his gallop, that Maud had also stopped. She was standing in the middle of the road, looking over her shoulder, not ten yards away. Had she seen him? It was a point that time alone could solve. No. She walked on again. She had not seen him. Lord Belpher, by means of a notable triumph of mind over matter, forgot the blisters and hurried after her. They had now reached that point in the road where three choices offer themselves to the wayfarer. By going straight on he might win through to the village of Moresby in the Vale, a charming little place with a Norman church. By turning to the left he might visit the equally seductive hamlet of Little Weeting. By turning to the right, off the main road and going down a leafy lane, he may find himself at the door of Platt's farm. When Maud, reaching the crossroads, suddenly swung down the one to the left, Lord Belpher was for the moment completely baffled. Reason reasserted its way the next minute, telling him that this was but a ruse. Whether or no she had caught sight of him, there was no doubt that Maud intended to shake off any possible pursuit by taking this speciously innocent turning and making a detour. She could have no possible motive in going to Little Weeting. He had never been to Little Weeting in his life, and there was no reason to suppose that Maud had either. The signpost informed him— a statement strenuously denied by the twin blisters, that the distance to Little Weeting was one and a half miles. Lord Belpher's view of it was that it was nearer fifty. He dragged himself along wearily. It was simpler now to keep Maud in sight, for the road ran straight. But, there being a catch in everything in this world, the process was also messier. In order to avoid being seen, it was necessary for Percy to leave the road, and— tramp along in the deep ditch, which ran parallel to it. There is nothing half-hearted about these ditches which accompany English country roads. They know they are intended to be ditches, not mere furrows, and they behave as such. The one that sheltered Lord Belpher was so deep that only his head and neck protruded above the level of the road, and so dirty that a bare twenty yards of travel was sufficient to coat him with mud. Rain, once fallen, is reluctant to leave the English ditch. It nestles inside it for weeks, forming a rich oatmeal-like substance, which has to be stirred to be believed. Percy stirred it. He churned it. He ploughed and sloshed through it. The mud stuck to him like a brother. Nevertheless, being a determined young man, he did not give in. Once he lost a shoe, but 